that's Stuart Epps's band, the unforgettably named Claggers, with their song Umberag, the B-side of their second single on DJM, which was itself called Someone. Epps is singing. Kaplan K, who got a mention in the I've Been Loving You episode, is on keyboards. Clive Franks is credited on guitar. Jeff Titmus is on drums. And someone's on bass, clearly. Not sure who it is. It's not credited. Some tracks feature Caleb on guitar, but not this one by the sounds of things. It's a really cool tune. It's hazy and dreamy. I like the reverse reverb on Stuart's vocal. They were all backroom guys at DJM, and they got to release three singles and one album on DJM back in 71. As you'll find out in the interview that's coming up, all of them except Kaplan K went to the same school, following each other into DJM one by one. So it's about time I said hello and welcome to episode 21 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast podcast. Today's episode is an extremely special one, an interview with someone who spent most of the classic years either by Elton's side or just off in the background helping everything run smoothly, Stuart Epps. He worked his way up through the ranks at Dick James pretty much simultaneously with Elton. I'm not going to go into all of his different roles here in the introduction, it's all covered in the interview. Suffice to say, he's Elton John royalty. Now, if you get frustrated because I'm asking Stuart the wrong questions, which you undoubtedly will, I know I did, listening back, then you can relieve that frustration by ordering Stuart's audiobook. There's sure to be way more colour and intrigue in his telling of his own story. As listeners of this podcast will know, I'm a bit nerdy about my 1967 to 1969 era Elton. And of course that comes across in my line of questioning. So if you want to hear the stories about Madison Square Garden, the John and Yoko, all the tantrums, all the parties, all the other obvious things you might have expected me to ask about, you'll have to get yourself a copy of the audiobook. There's a link in the episode description. So, on with the interview. Stuart's telling me about his very first steps into the music business. I'm wondering about how you got the job in the first place. Was it your first job out of school at DJM? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, left school at 15 and um, my friend Clive Franks, who then became Elton's uh, sound guy for 30 years, uh, was at school with him. He'd already started at, D- at Dick James and um, was telling me, you know, he used to come home with all these great stories. So uh, when he said he was being moved up from Office Boy to Discutter and they were looking for a replacement, I thought that sounds like a great idea. So went along and... Um, got the job as office boy and that's how it started. Were you in bands while you were at school? Did you play music? Absolutely, yeah. I was playing music from the age of, I don't know, four years old. And oh, were you? What was your first instrument? Guitar, always, uh, always guitar. We didn't have a piano at home, so I had a guitar when I was about five or six. And yeah, yeah I joined bands when I was about nine or 10, 11, and Good was Lord. making uh, demos with Clive and at that time and then uh, was in a sort of a semi-serious band um, when I was about 11 or 12 and uh, Clive joined that band and we used to play all the clubs and at that age that's so young yeah well everyone did everything um, in I think in music younger in those days really it was innocence and energy wasn't it it was the yeah and and, um, 
I mean, yeah, I suppose it is a bit strange when you look back, but even, you know, professional musicians like Jimmy Page went, you know, he was um, top session guy, age 16, 17. People seemed to do things younger in those days, really. And as I said, I was speaking to Dana Gillespie and she was, uh, re- she recorded her first album with Donovan at the age of about 15. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, everything seemed to happen. And certainly um, joining Dick James at 15, uh, that was a great... Um, great start in the music business so you know to start that early so by the age of 18 I was now uh, working in the studio I'd been disc cutter Um, aged 18 I I produced my first record with Elton playing piano on it and uh, so much happened in a short period of time in those days. Um, What what year did you actually start at DJM do you remember? Yeah it was 1967 July Uh, I think. I'm wondering what was the atmosphere like there? What was, like, say, the, the morning routine like upon arriving? Well, morning routine for me was, um, and well, everyone had their own jobs to do, mm-hmm. so there wasn't like a routine for the, for the whole building, but there was, um, it was a big organisation on three, <clears throat> on four floors, 71 to 75 New Oxford Street. There was probably about, I don't know, 40 people working there, and, um, you know, as I say, it's a big organisation, music publishers, not music record company. No. But uh, my little part of it, I was the office boy for. Well, I was the office boy for, for the whole building. So, it would be bringing up the dustbins and then cleaning out the coffee machine and uh, exciting jobs like that, <coughs> taking like... deliveries, um, and... but then buying rolls for everyone and uh, just being the. That's what the office boy does. He's the lowest of the low. But you know, for for me, it was an exciting job. So. Um, and I was getting paid six pound a week, so it was just uh, it was a great time, even though you could actually do something with that money then absolutely yeah, it was about I was getting sort of fifty p a week prior to that <laughs> so uh, and anyway, um taking uh packages round to Paul McCartney or to Abbey Road Studios or to Olympic Studios or taking uh, sheet music round to Denmark Street. They were all exciting um, things to be to be asked to do in a way, you know, mm. going to the British Museum with the latest Beatles sheet music or, you know, every yeah. every sort of job wasn't really like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. It was, um, wow, yeah, was I can't wait. Exciting time. <laughs> and I guess in those early days, the White Album was being pulled together, wasn't it? And we're coming up to 50 years now, aren't we? Well, that's true, and then you've obviously, I don't know, you must have read my mind, or because part of um, in my my uh, talk is when, um, not sure, we had a cutting room there, you see, and I'm not sure if it was Clive that was in the cutting room, or I was now in the cutting room, where, where we, I think it was Clive was in there, but I used to be allowed in there, although it was quite a strict um, place, you know, I wasn't allowed, you couldn't just walk in the studio or anything, but the cutting room where all the tape copies were done, and we were given... We were given uh, Beatles records before they were released so that the sheet music could be sorted. Yeah. And uh, that was when I was there was when the White Album arrived. And I distinctly remember um, a copy of that in the, cu- in the cutting room and everyone gathered in there, Elton John included and all the bands and all sort of huddled in there to play the White Album for the first time, which was a, an amazing experience. It must have been. And the yeah. confusing album, it's such a montage of things, isn't it? Especially as you get towards the end. Well, I mean, I just remember... Were there looks of bafflement? Yeah, no, there wasn't looks of bafflement. There was 
looks of um, pure uh, wonderment, really, at the sounds. And you talk about My Guitar Gently Weeps and some of the incredible uh, tracks on that album. Because, uh, you know, we were all, we were all budding um, musicians and engineers and producers. That's what we were. We were only interested in music and the sounds. So, you know, from a sound uh, production point of view, some of those uh, sounds on the White Album were completely unique. Yes. And, and you weren't just listening to new songs. You were listening to new sounds, really, that you'd never heard before. Elton himself was an office boy just a couple of years before that, wasn't he? So yeah, he I was. like to he, think he would yeah. have been treating you quite well in your role and understanding and welcoming. He seems well, like that kind I of mean, guy. Um, I mean, you know, it was, uh, I don't remember, he, he wasn't really there long before I was. So um, it wasn't really a welcome. It was just we were, we were there. I remember meeting him. Mm. We became, uh, he was a mad guy and... Uh, <laughs> We, we used to hang out pretty quickly. We were all mates, uh, along with Caleb. And uh, I was living in North London, and Elton and Caleb used to come to North London. Elton would come to my house. We were having parties. You know, we became sort of mates. We were all close, really, there. There was a group of us that were very close, and uh, including Clive. And then another guy from our school, Jeff Titmus, started. Um, he, he took over from me as office boy when I became disc cutter, and then Clive went in the studio. So we were sort of following in, in each other's footsteps. Yes. And uh, and the other people in this, particularly Caleb and Elton, we became mates with. And we'd, we'd go to all the Hookfoot gigs. Caleb was in a band called Hookfoot. Elton would often be playing with Hookfoot. I, I wonder, how did that work out? Because, I've, for example, stuff like that incredible introduction to Ballad of a Well-Known Gun was supposedly worked out at Hookfoot gigs, but... So was was it done in sound check or did Elton come out? I haven't got no, I haven't got a clue on Ballad of a Well Known Gun, where that was worked out. I shouldn't think. I don't know if it was worked out. I mean, Caleb was uh, just the most amazing guitarist. He could just pick up a guitar and come out with that yeah. um, very easily. But it's 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 the interplay as well in that introduction. Well, he was probably one of the best guitarists on the planet. And yeah. anyway, long before that, um, you know, the, the, there's a it's quite a long story. You see. Mm because um, Caleb really introduced Elton to Dick James. Uh, El Caleb was the engineer in the studio, and he, he, met, um, he met Elton when he was the office boy, and then uh, got him into Dick James, and they started making demos um, pretty much probably 66, I think, 1966, before I joined. When I joined, they were already doing this. Mm -hmm. So... Um, there's, those recordings are, uh, we get to hear some of them in fairly shoddy fidelity, but I imagine, and I've heard an interview with Elton where he mentions his mother owning them and wrapping them in a ribbon, the actual, the actual tapes. Do you think they exist somewhere? Well, uh, um, if the tapes don't exist, there's plenty of copies around. Yeah. So obviously, uh, I mean, we used to do copies of the... Uh, if we're talking about the album that was made prior to Empty Sky with mm -hmm. the tide would turn for Rebecca. and You see, the thing is that it was an incredible place. People were churning out, Elton included, were churning out music. Uh, apart from, you know, he was sort of making music for Eurovision, you know, um, yeah. which was called the yeah Song Contest. I mean, Can't Go on Living Without You was a song that he wrote that uh, Lulu sang and... Uh, because Dick James was the music publisher, 
publisher, you see. So everyone was there mm. uh, to make music, really to sell, you know, not just for fun. So um, although uh, Caleb and Elton were doing quite a lot of music for fun, they were also doing music for the publisher. So that would have been, in, you know, some of those are included on that first album. But in the cutting room, that's why it's called a cutting room, we'd be making uh, copies of all these things. Yeah. So copies were going out and then obviously people make copies of copies. So I can remember very clearly because I used to look after the actual master tapes of those albums and they were in EMI boxes and I can see them in my head now. And yeah. I, I actually think Steve Brown might have had those, but it doesn't really matter because um, they'd probably be unplayable now anyway. But there yeah. are, you only got to go on the, on the internet and type in any of those songs and exactly. they're all there. Well, some are missing. I've got, there was one song that was recorded, which we heard a little snippet of in a documentary fairly recently called The Girl on Angel Pavement. And the, and the, the timing of that one is interesting because that was about, I think, September-ish, 68. I used to cut demos of those. I know all those, I know all those songs, Girl on Angel so, Pavement, and I think that had the Mirage on it singing and oh, did it? playing back in vocals uh, and all that stuff. Yeah, I Smokestack Children on there. Those ones haven't really Smoke come through to children. us. Yeah, absolutely. But, but, in fact, but that... I can see that was on a five-inch. I mean, it, that's the crazy thing when you're talking to me, you see, because I was there. So I can actually remember and I can see in my head the box. That went up for auction, that tape, with that box. I'll, I'll send you an image of it. But, but I think but what I'm saying about that one is that um, it's actually... Girl on uh, Angel Pavements are really quite straightforward, not that straightforward, but it's a very commercial sounding piece of music. But it was after Steve Brown got more involved in Elton's career. But that's a... before Steve. Oh, was it? Was it? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, All Steve right. would have nothing to do with anything like that. In fact, part of my story is because I was there when Steve arrived, you see. I mean, like it say it's a long story but Elton was making all these demos girl and angel pavement turn to me mm. I will turn through Becker mm. and, you know there's a whole load and load of them uh, so he's making all these tracks which we actually thought were brilliant uh, we loved uh, a lot of them but then uh, when Steve arrived um, I was asked to play this album to Steve and so I was I was in the cutting room with Steve and Elton and Bernie and we played the album and uh, I'm just thinking well he's obviously going to rave about it but what we did hear back was that he actually he didn't really like it. He thought it was too poppy, he thought it was too commercial, mm. you know, couldn't really see any um, anything, you know, incredibly of value in it. So certainly I went, when I heard this, I was horrified really. I thought, well, what does yeah. he know, you know? But anyway, uh, he did ask um, Elton and Bernie if there's any other songs that they were writing or that they were into that weren't, you know, that they weren't writing for commercial purposes. And that's really when the empty... Uh, well, actually, the first one would have been um, Lady Samantha, which was mm. Elton's uh, second single. You know, his first single was I've Been Loving You, which was in this commercial vein, and that was on yeah. this record. You saw Elton with, say, members of the Mirage, maybe play live with Caleb, didn't you? Like at the Marquee? No, I don't think the Mirage ever played. Oh, didn't um, they? Uh. No, it was Hookfoot that uh, played with without oh. not not mirage they had their own career they were doing okay as they would yeah you know it was it was hookfoot that elton used to play with what sort of material do you think they ever had a crack at zippo live well it might possibly be you can't but are we going to stick on zippo because we're no. going to we've got loads to talk about okay okay, okay apart okay. from zippo obviously you're into those i love that stuff you like those early tracks i really well, so do. did i yeah but the story is that when steve brown then said i don't like that you know have you got anything else 
we thought, well, what a git, you know, get rid of him. But Elton and Bernie were fascinated. So then if you listen to the uh, Lady Samantha, which Steve produced, yeah. was like, wow, this is... Um, this is very good as well. I mean, At that point, you, you realised that Steve knew what he was talking yeah, about. Yeah, Steve knew what he was talking about, and uh, he was a good producer, and now they, he's becoming close with Elton and Bernie. Mm. Uh, Lady Samantha's got Caleb on it, so there was still plenty of the uh, aspects of the stuff that he'd done before musically. Uh, and then really quickly after that, at almost the same time, uh, Steve produced um, Empty Sky. Yeah, I love Empty Sky. Now, Empty Sky is a whole load on from Regimental Sergeant Zipper or Sitting Doing Nothing, you know. Mm. Uh, sitting Doing Nothing, all those are like Beatlesque, you know, nicked from the Beatles, if you like, and a lot of the bands that were around at the time. Whereas Empty Sky, you know, the track Empty Sky that it starts off with is like, wow, this is something different. Yeah. So uh, we were now into another era, although, you know, it was pretty quick. And I was there throughout those recordings. You know, I'm credited on the album sleeve for... What what you uh, what you uh, well I'm credited uh, it, for being because uh, I was like security keeping people out of the <laughs> making sure that you know I don't know people didn't come in the door or whatever it was but um, basically I was in the cutting room I was a cutting engineer yeah. and Clive was now the assistant engineer Frank Owen was the engineer and uh, Steve was producing this album which uh, was recorded on um, four track you know that in in the studio mm. I remember all the recordings and. We were just over the moon with it. Are there many alternate versions of those songs? Don't think so. No. And I don't think either. Also, we were talking, I was just talking to Clive about this, that there weren't any demos of those. So it's, um, I think they probably made a lot of it up in the studio. Um, and uh, maybe they had rehearsals, although I don't really know. But there aren't any demos as far it's as shame, I know. Isn't it? So it means we get to 50 years next year, so there's no great surprises to come. No. So, um, Anyway, so this was a brilliant album. Um, mm. I, I went uh, personally went from Discutter to because uh, Frank Owen left the studio, and then Clive became the engineer, and um, and then I became his uh, assistant in the studio, and so things were really sort of moving along now. Yes, uh, Empty Sky was released, um, got great reviews. Didn't sell. Didn't a lot. do very well. Didn't mm. sell a lot. Um, but it, it sort of it's, it was the start of Elton the Elton John career really you know putting now that Steve was in charge he was a great guy mm. and knew what he wanted to do um, so this was really getting it on a better footing and I can't remember exactly what year but then we um, I started working for Steve I, I got a bit fed up with the studio yeah. although I liked the studio I was. Um, after after getting close to Elton and, and hearing all this great material and then getting friendly with Steve, I was really keen to um, help with the releasing and A uh, and R and this sort of thing. So yeah. I went to work as Steve Brown's assistant. You were still sighted in uh, New Oxford Street, though, weren't you? Were you still absolutely? Yeah. Oh yeah, we were on second floor. Uh, yeah. Actually, no, we were on the good point. What floor were we on? Third floor, I think, first office on the left. Where was the studio in the building? Yeah, it's on the studio was on the first floor at the back of the uh, at the back of the offices. It's a forbidden planet now, isn't it? Have you walked past it ever? It's a hair. Well, it was a hairdresser oh, was last it? time. Oh, maybe you're right. Yeah, That's yeah, a hairdresser last time. I, I went for a walk round it, and it's difficult to. Uh, but we did find the uh, the um, did manage to find the fire escape 
which was outside the, the the studio, which is where Alton recorded the vocal to uh, Skyline Pigeons. Uh, from finding the fire escape, we found where the studio would have been. So that gives it that sort of metallic sound. Yeah, that's it to get that um, reverb in the in the area there. You've said on your website that it was a mutual decision in, say, like the autumn of 69 when Steve did a few recordings with Alton yeah. for what would have been, well, the next two albums, really. But mm-hmm. And he, it was decided between everyone that they needed to get more experienced hands in. Which well, I don't to... know if it was, I don't know who, I don't know how many were involved. As far as I know, it was only Steve. It was only Steve, really, because I'm sure Elton wouldn't have fired Steve as his producer. It was Steve that, uh, after being at, uh, we tried out these, um, we did these songs at Olympic Studios, Take Me to the Pilot, and a few others. I can't remember exactly what was included. I mean, those tapes would be interesting if they're around anywhere. So, um, you know, and I remember Pilot had a three-minute guitar solo by Caleb in it. So let me break in there for a moment the session that me and Stuart are talking about there is tricky to date something like September 1969 in all likelihood there are a couple of tracks from this that have been officially released there's the version of Rock and Roll Madonna that ends with the laughter on the Elton John deluxe edition and there's also the fairly embryonic version of Ballad of a Well-Known Gun that starts off CD2 of the Tumbleweed Deluxe Edition. A version of Take Me to the Pilot, which Stuart mentioned, has snuck through, though, onto YouTube. I'll put a link to it in the episode description. Here's a bit of it, though. Oh, you're so 
back to Stuart. Uh, Steve had decided that after those, I mean, there was a lot of drugs being smoked. There was too many guitar solos and, and mm. good on him, really, that Steve was looking to produce something, wanted something more um, astounding, if you like, or different or whatever from Elton. So he decided to look around for another record producer. And uh, I don't know whether you know the story, but um, he was fr uh, he was friends with um, the manager of Paul Buckmaster, Tony Hall it was. Uh -huh. So he had a meeting with um, Paul Buckmaster and because uh, they're also looking for the possibility of an arranger and obviously that's what Paul was and it was Paul actually uh, who asked uh, who the producer was and, and Steve said well we haven't got anyone yet and um, he said well why don't you try Gus Dudgeon he just worked with him on the uh, on the Bowie or some other session there was uh, 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 Michael Chapman album as well wasn't yeah there? well that's it you know stuff that I don't know so mm. that's quite possible uh, and actually, uh, Steve had already tried George Martin and um, uh, Denny Caldell, I seem to remember, who was doing Leon Russell and various people. And, and uh, quite a few of them turned it down. Well, they turned it down. They, they turned down working with Elton. I thought it was the other way around. I thought that they... Uh, I've seen it the other way around with George Martin, that, um, that they decided that it was, he was going to be too close to... Well, this is kind of what I read into it, that he would end up being too close to Dick James and they wouldn't have any freedom on the project. Well, that's possible. That might have come into the conversation, but... Because, um, you know, I, I only heard the stuff... You hear, the, you hear the outcome, don't you, rather? Yeah, it wasn't... Um, yeah, the outcome was basically... Uh, well, I only just... I only found out in the last few years about this conversation with Paul Buckmaster, because so, otherwise I didn't quite know where Gus did come from. Mm. So uh, apparently that's the story. It's all down to Paul Buckmaster, really, that, that Gus got the job. But one way or another, he did get the job. And prior to all this, Elton had been in the studio with Clive making demos of the uh, of 60 Years On and Take Me to the Pilot. Well, probably not Take Me to the Pilot, but some of the other greatest discoveries, some of the other songs that were going to appear on on this new album and they were complete di direction change yeah in terms of song content they were completely different to uh you know to some of the rock tracks that they've been doing bernie's writing was getting quite obscure at the time wasn't it well i don't know whether i call it obscure <laughs> stuff like gray seal and pilot well they're not obscure to him they might be to everyone else. He's he's, he he likes to claim that it doesn't really mean anything, but yeah. I think I can read quite a bit into that material myself. Whatever the lyrics meant, what it meant to us listening to these demos were these were just the most magnificent. What it meant to me was they were the most magnificent songs I'd ever heard yeah. and very different to anything I'd ever heard. And it, and it was my mate that had written them, Elton hmm. John. So, uh, and, and the arrangements when you listen to his piano playing on those demos is incredible it's it's very very uh very different and very um uh, progressive i suppose the word is yeah, yeah. progressive because actually at that time progressive music was was doing rather well you know you've got all these beatles included making uh pink floyd making very progressive music and what elton was producing now just in these very um simple demos well, it wasn't that simple. So no. anyway, now I was working for, for Steve Brown full time. And uh, we were also putting together the record company, which became DJM Records. Mm -hmm. So things were just marching along at this amazing rate. And, uh, and now 
as far as uh, Elton's release was concerned and production that you know I was putting helping put together these meetings uh, with Steve that I didn't always go to but there'd be Steve Brown Gus Dudgeon uh, Elton and Bernie and Paul Buckmar so that was the team yeah. that were now um, putting together this next album the Elton John album and and that really was a a mega operation I would call it it's been described as a sort of army like yeah well that's it that's how Elton describes Gus but um, <laughs> but we were we were put yeah like a sergeant major but we were I mean I was all involved in in everything from putting the meetings together to then booking the studio trying the studios to booking the musicians to booking the instruments mm. you know everything involved in putting together this album that um, I mean I'd never done anything like this before so it was all new to to all of us in a way, but we were doing it the very best way we could. Yeah, you um, you, you booked like the imagine. top the top of the line backing vocalist, didn't you? You didn't go for the cheapest. Well, part, yeah, backing vocalist, but also top drummers, top bass players. Yeah, uh, Barry Morgan on the drums, and what was the bass player's name? Can't remember his name now. But they're all top guys, you know. And, and Caleb was still involved, and then we had Paul making these amazing um, arrangements. So. Yeah. You know, putting together this album, which, you know, just turned out to be this uh, mega production, incredible sound, a total, um, complete, really different change from yeah. it's the Empty isn't Sky it? From, album. From I mean, Sky. it's just ridiculous. So um, things were really moving along musically. And uh, I was also involved in the sleeve, so it was really... Yeah. It's a really gothic-looking putting... sleeve, and, a re and, and in places it does have that real dark chamber sound, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You, well, it was, a piece of, uh, it was a piece of work anyway. You, you, if you went round London, if you went in hi-fi shops, you know, the record that they'd have on the turntable to show you the quality of the hi-fi would be this new Elton John album. Yeah. Because it was an amazing production, amazing sound. Uh, there's um, Chris Simpson from Man Magna Carta has said that he helped you promote it. Well, I don't know him at all. Uh, don't you? Okay. He 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 got a, a sheet of your stickers and was oh. putting oh, them up I and see. down the northern line. He said. Oh wow, that's a bit amazing. Well, yeah, because uh, I've still got some of those stickers. I was yeah, wondering, was, you really? <laughs> because I was involved in um, in promoting that album, of course. You know, and I, yeah. I took out. Um, I used to take out uh, window displays in uh, music, you know, in the in the record shops, and uh, I was, well, me and between Steve and I, we were doing all the work really to promote the record, mm. which was from you know stickers to radio play, to coming up with, um, you know, we had posters on buses that said Elton Who and this sort of thing. Oh yeah, that's right. So you know, we, um, I mean, you know, it's a crazy, it was a crazy time. You didn't get into any bother then for the stickers. I remember I put no. a poster up for uh, yeah, on we the were window once. About that, I were you? Yeah. <laughs> I bet you were. I put a poster up and got a phone call. In fact, the count for my band back right, in school, yeah. and the council came round to yeah. my mum's work and to oh. complain about it, which was yeah. it just seemed a little. No, I, I was worried about that because <laughs> we were sticking them everywhere. Yeah. You know, you'd stick them on people if you could. So because uh, <laughs> we were just Elton mad, you know, we were absolutely Elton. I mean, there are other bands on the on the label that we were responsible for working with Steve, but uh, Philip Goodhand Tate and Hookfoot. Mm. And Birds of a Feather as well, which was your project. Yeah, Birds of a Feather was, well, actually, that was on page one records. Not, How was it? Huh? Not DJM, yeah, which was on the second floor, page one, 
run by Larry Page. But we were very out and focused, and, and all we wanted was for this album to be huge, and uh, which it wasn't at all. No, it um, didn't. It didn't find its market at that time. Didn't it didn't, the market well, didn't the, really exist. The the thing was that it uh, it found its market as far as the music business was concerned. Yes, and um, and sort of highbrow music enthusiasts and people in colleges and things found it, and and especially in America, you know, it's um. It found its way into great musicians and people in the businesses' collections. But as a commercial, because I used to have to get the sales figures every day for Elton, and uh, we did actually have Top of the Pops came, rang us up. I was there when the phone went. It was Top of the Pops. We had Top of the Pops with uh, Border, uh, Border Song. Song. Yeah, so we thought, this is it. He's done it. We've made it. He went out and bought a jacket, especially. Uh, Ray Williams was his manager at this time. I can see us all going nuts, thinking that this is it, we've made it. But um, waiting for the sales the next day or the day after that, they were still hopeless, really. Uh, it didn't really do anything. His, his, um, I wonder why. And that doesn't, and well, that, that he probably hasn't... wasn't, he, you know, it wasn't a border song, wasn't exactly a... No, it's not the most commercial, commercial song. I mean, when you think of it, your song's on the same... But we never imagined your song as a single at the time. Really? Borders, well, it wasn't released. Because it's longer? Just... No, I think it was just too too ballady, really. Mm. You know, they were different times. You're yeah, Border about, Song's got some energy, I guess. Talking about the, the uh, yeah, you're talking about the end of the 60s, and uh, your song would have probably just been a bit too much of a ballad, mm. more of an album track. Well, it was. Mm. Your song was definitely an album track, whereas Border Song's got that big chorus and you know, big backing bottles, gospel stuff. We thought, yeah. oh, that'll be a hit. It definitely but, swells. Um, it, but it definitely wasn't. Um, Elton got with uh, Dee and Nigel in, I think, about March or April, you were putting that three-piece together. But there were still BBC sessions as late as, say, I think, July, even later, with Hookfoot. Yeah, absolutely, you're There's right. There was quite a crossover, wasn't there? Well, the thing is that... Um, the, the D and Nigel band was put together specifically for live, mm. and um, and when you'd have been talking about a session, um, a live session, you'd have wanted the musicians that were on the albums, yeah. and D and uh, Nigel weren't on the albums really. They weren't uh, certainly weren't on the Elton John albums. It was a while before they got that legitimacy, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was you know when Gus was involved. I mean Gus was now involved, so he was using uh, Roger Pope. And he wouldn't. He he would only use Nigel, and uh, he would only use Nigel for sort of uh, straight rock tracks, really. Mm -hmm. So definitely, when it came to those, um, yeah, BBC, Aeolian Hall, because I used to I used to organise a lot of those. Mm -hmm. It would have been it would have been the uh, the hook foot rhythm section, absolutely. Yeah. You, you wrote on your website, and presumably you talk about it in the audio book about the first three piece gig, and that. Elton kicking away the stool and getting a little bit involved with the audience. And yeah, initially it, yeah. you, you cringed. Cringed. I was totally embarrassed. I was just telling someone about this um, just the other day. And uh, because, um, you know, he'd been to, uh, had this amazing opportunity to go to the States, which is why that three piece was put together. Yes. Uh, and without Caleb, which was strange to say the least. But, uh, you know, he had it in his mind to do this different lineup. And, um, so I hadn't seen, I'd seen them rehearse, you know, I had an idea of what the 
of course what the band was like but i hadn't seen the gig and and they played at the i think it was the revolution club mm. and that was the first time i remember seeing the the show this new show and uh yeah and when he sort of stood up from the stool and started walking about and bashing a tambourine on his bum <laughs> i couldn't bear to look do you cringe easily stuart do you cringe no, easily no absolutely not i'm terrible i really do cringe elton had never got off the off the piano stool before and he wasn't exactly uh he wasn't elvis you no, know i mean he, he wasn't all, mick jagger was he so i just thought well he's he's just he's just gone mad yeah but you know <laughs> he he'd been to the states he'd just done that to huge acclaim you know at the troubadour and, and with leon russell and all these great gigs and gone down a storm but that's not to say it was going to go down a storm uh, with english audience as i was sitting there everyone's clapping along and the atmosphere is changing from what it used to be, which was just polite applause, you know, uh, people looking vaguely interested, to now this was, I'd never seen anything like this for an Elton gig. They were really getting into it, um, and they were clapping along, yeah. and at the end of the song, they're just all standing up, and there's this huge acclaim, and I, my head, I'm taking off now thinking about it. Uh, it was just the buzz, you know, that was the thing, and that was the first... Uh, time i'd seen this happen so he'd, he'd cracked uh audience cracked the audience and and i don't think that was after america though that that would have been before that would have been sure about... it, you well, think it's... i'm pretty sure it was after he'd been on that first because uh, he went to america tour, in yeah. august 70 but the first yeah. the very first three-piece gigs were about march or april 1970 <laughs> well the, the thing is Neil, you see when i wrote uh, the book that yeah. this uh, CD is based on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you want to get months and days I, and I, years right, I, it's you, about, you, it, I, you know, I was referring to, um, you know, people that have written about it to try and get the, the chronologically in place. But um, because everything happened at such an amazingly quick rate in those few early years mm. that you literally are talking about months. Yeah. Right, he went to, you know, like you just did, you know, you've got the dates. So, you know, he went to the States in April and the escape yeah. wasn't until May and all this stuff. But um, so sometimes I get that wrong. If it were my life, arguing. I wouldn't be able to tell you a single thing about, well, I've, I'm not quite, I'm not 50 anyway, so I couldn't tell you what happened 50 years ago. But I can't tell you what I did last week at work. I haven't got a clue. So you guys, all of you who have recollections of these days doing incredibly yeah, so well we've to got, anything together. Yeah, and it's, 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 shrouded in, um, it's shrouded in a certain amount of mist as far as the uh, date. Yeah. But although, of course, there's certain dates when I started Dick James or when I was at mm. Madison Square that you remember these dates. But um, what isn't mysterious at all is what happened at those on those occasions so no. uh, in my in my head uh, this particular gig i hadn't seen that before so yeah. and i seem to remember that it was when they came back from the state anyway it makes for a better story Neil. <laughs> um <laughs> do, did you did you see elton at uh, the royal albert hall supporting fotheringay I don't know. Okay, just wondering. <laughs> um, I don't know about that. I would think so, that in those early days, there's no chance that I wouldn't have been at, um, at the Albert Hall with Elton because no. I, was part of, I was part of the team. Apparently they blew I, I Fotheringay, the they blew what them off the stage that, in 1970. It's more of these yeah, well, sort of I, summer 70 Well, I was gigs. still at Dick James, so yeah. of course I'd have been there. Yeah, yeah. you'd have been there. 
yeah, absolutely. And you, I'd as, have been at every Elton gig. As uh, and you, much. did you go? You didn't go to uh, the Troubadour in that on that first no, wave, did you? No, the but first, you went. Um, you went on later. Yeah, George, I went in about you? 70, uh, 71 or seventy two on the tour that we did. Um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the band now that was, uh, that was supporting us, which is how I often remember the tours. But uh, it was uh, it was remember. the one after, uh, not soon, it, not too soon after. The, it was soon after the Troubadour, anyway. But Steve Brown was, um, you know, I was back in the office getting all the news. Uh, Steve, I'd speak to him every day. He'd say, mm. "Wow, the, obviously about the Troubadour, but then also the gigs that he did with Leon Russell, where he was blowing Leon Russell off stage and." Uh, yeah. It all sounded fantastic, let do alone... You, do you remember hearing about the Robert Hilburn review and all of those first reviews? Yeah, I would have done, yeah, because I was the main one, though, that we were mainly uh, amazed with and loved was the headline, Dylan Diggs Elton, oh, headline yeah. Melody Maker, because yeah. Elton had never had a headline in any of the music papers as far as we remembered, and this was just... Um, Dylan digs out, and I mean, you couldn't get better than that. No. So uh, this was right, major stuff. You know, it was all really happening now. Your your role kind of settled down a little bit then, and you you became something of a PA for Elton on the road when you're on the road. At well, least, I was. Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, I was. Didn't have that term then, but I was no. definitely his, his assistant on those on those tours. That's all I was doing really. Uh, I was travelling with him because Steve didn't want to do the next tour. Basically, that's what. Steve had done on the previous tour and Elton wanted someone with him, you know, for interviews just as well, sort things out basically. So, mm. um, that's what I did on, on two tours. Um, can't remember what years they were, but they were somewhere between 71 and 72. I did two pretty lengthy tours, three month tours, uh, with Elton and, um, and they were just absolutely amazing because we were just doing these incredible, uh, Carnegie hall and, um, you know, the American audience was just, were just going nuts yeah. for Elton, that, that we'd never seen anything like it in uh, in the UK. So it was, uh, yeah, and the record company there, Uni, uh, you know, we'd visit the, the Universal Studio and record company and all the various subsidiaries around America. And they really were, they were sort of right behind Elton. It was it was just when he took off, it just took off. In a, so, so they they made your role fairly easy in sorting out uh, press and well, things like that. Yeah, the the tours were pretty well sorted out. We had, yeah. um, you know, we had great sound and they were great gigs mostly. Yeah. I can't remember all of them, but um, you know, there'd be interviews every. Yeah, I mean, this was the the music business uh, reacting incredibly well in the states to this great. English artist and uh, they'd set things up rather well. Yeah, there was never, um, well, we don't want to do that or why are we doing that? Because we were all in, in a, on a high from it, you see. So mm. uh, it was a pleasure. It was just an amazement to be doing these things, not like what it maybe became more later on, which was like, oh, I don't want to do that. What are we doing that for? It was like to have this whole industry caring about Elton and, and what he was doing was just the best thing ever. He was actually excited to do a media day or something like that. Yeah, yeah it was just uh, amazing. Um, you've, so you went on to, a, you toured with him in 72 as well. And I, I remember reading on your website that um, when Davey joined the band, you were initially a bit unsure about his contribution. And well, yeah, it's one of the things I've said that um, <clears throat> it was it was 
after Madman that um, Davey had gone down really well as guitarist on the uh, mm. on the sessions, and there must have been talk of him joining the band. I don't remember that, but obviously there was talk of him joining it, and then he was joining it. So I do remember um, the first gig I saw. It might have been the first gig he did at the. Uh, hmm, can't remember what that Europe, was. I think maybe. Oh, yeah, sorry, no, no, a, no, Royal Festival Hall. No, it wasn't the festival hall. Oh, was it, not? it was, it was this strange theatre in in London, and I can't remember what it's called now. But anyway, he um, was that the orchestral show. Yeah, no, that was because um, he, he wasn't on that. That no. was still Caleb at the yeah. festival because I helped organise that. But um, no, it was. Um, it's just not in my head at the moment. But okay. anyway, it was. Uh, it wasn't good. I mean, Davey didn't have his sound together. He, he didn't really have a decent guitar, electric guitar. I think that's when Elton gave him the Les Paul, that was actually Elton's, and gave it to Davey. Was it? Uh, but he didn't have his amp sound together, and it wasn't very good. But it was, you know, I mean, I loved Davey's playing, you know, yeah. uh, from the albums, and he's a great guy. And actually, I just thought, well, that's a great idea, a great plan. But it was a, it, we, because we'd been had the three piece for so long, and it had worked so brilliantly. Then it was it was just something new that was a bit mm. different and needed a bit of getting into, you know. Which um, of course he did, and and same for Dee and Nigel, you know, they were quite happy as a as a three piece. So it was a, you know, it was a new sort of thing. Really, I think they took a bit of a financial hit, didn't they? Or, or there was there was some there was some. And worries over money. Well, but, there might have been, but yeah. I don't remember. I None of us used to worry about money. No. <laughs> well, I certainly didn't. Well. But, um, you know, so money never really seemed to come into much of it. But I'm sure it did. You, they're all, I'm sure there were all sorts of things going on, but I wasn't party to them. And I was um, very much with Steve, you know, doing all the organising. So. And as the years went on, 73, 74, you, you weren't on the road in the same way. Did, did your role... It seems like you got a little bit disillusioned with it. No, not yet. Um, not, not yet. Because, uh, <laughs> not yet, because uh, these were incredibly still important years. Yes. Because we formed Rocket Records, you see. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, so, of course you did. You know, and then I was involved in forming Rocket, and I left Dick James, which was a huge, uh, a huge thing to do. But it wasn't really, because we'd already discussed forming our own record company, yeah. which was unbelievably exciting. And it was going to be Steve Brown, Gus... Elton and Bernie and John Reed mm. who's now involved managing Elton. So it was an amazingly exciting time and I, I was with Steve, we chose the building, I painted the inside of it, you know, and, and that was probably one of my best times in work at that, oh, really? those early days. Yeah, because this was being at the start of a new record company which was which was a new thing anyway, and there were not many independent record companies starting up. So It must be wonderful getting all the tapes through the door. Well, it, it was. It was an amazing time. Uh, the offices were amazing. Elton wasn't going to be signed to, to uh, Rocket uh, initially, so mm. we still signed to Dick James. So we were then, you know, Rocket Records was an incredible thing, looking for new artists. It was mainly put together for Davy's album, in fact, Smiling, Smiling Face, because there was no record company for that. Mm. And that was when they actually thought, let's form one. So... Um, and then uh, it was 1974 when I was at Rocket that uh, then I started working with Kiki, who we'd signed. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, we got this opportunity out and wanted Kiki to support her, to support him on the American tour. 
and I went on this incredible three-month tour of looking after Kiki and the band who I'd helped put together, uh, which now had Roger Pope in it, and it was an incredible band. Yes. Um, so, yeah, that was an amazing period, really, playing with John Lennon at Madison Square Gardens. And I mean, you know, the disillusionment and the problem came at the end of, uh, at the end of that tour, when we were on such a high yes. and, and Kiki was in the charts and everything was brilliant because um, got the message back that um, John Reed wanted to dissolve the band. You know, he wanted to, uh, he wanted to get rid of Kiki's band. So that was not really the thing we thought might happen after such a successful uh, tour. And that was to, to the end of getting Roger into Elton's band. Yeah. I mean, that was obviously what that was about because they were going to then join Elton's band, so but I didn't know that. Uh, Steve had now Steve was having problems at uh, Rocket, um, and he decided to leave. I don't know if that's in '74 or '75. Mm-hmm. Actually, what am I talking about? No, it must have been. See, these things happen so quickly because uh, it must have been prior to '74. Uh, that then... sorry, my cat's just arrived. Shush, yeah. Isaac. So I think well, they they recorded Captain. Shush, please, little man. Hang on a moment. We need to let this cat uh, diffuse himself slightly. He just has to do this. They recorded Captain Fantastic in the summer of '74, and I think it was pretty soon after that, wasn't it? Yeah, it could have been. The band was uh, dissolved. Elton said that when he watched Kiki's band, he was envious of the sound they had and how much fun they were having on stage. No, I. That's nice to know. I like that. Oh, you haven't heard. I've never heard that. No, I haven't heard that. No. That's nice, I like that. <laughs> well, they were a great band. It was a great band, of course. We had Roger Pope, um, Phil, uh, and we had a sli- uh, sly guitar, steel guitar, BJ Cole and Joe Partridge. Yeah, it was a great mm. band. Well, I wouldn't say it was it was better than Elton's band. I mean, Elton's band were brilliant. It was totally brilliant as well. No, I mean, uh, um, Elton had got in his head that um, he wanted, you know, like a super group. He wanted, a, he wanted to upgrade the... Uh, the band to, you know, even better musicianship, if you like. So there were yeah. a lot of bands around like that. But it he got was always quite, trying to get it better anyway. He was always trying quite, to... It got quite muso, didn't it? It got... Well, absolutely. It, there yeah, were lots of very long, drawn-out solos. Elton lost himself in the end a little bit, didn't he, I think? I don't know. I mean, the thing is that they recorded Blue Moves, you see. Mm. Now, Blue Moves was just the best thing anyone had ever heard. I mean, it wasn't just Elton songs. It was also incredible production, amazing instrumentally. And, and just when I first heard it, I just thought, wow, that is just, uh, still sounds great. And mm-hmm. But it was a, it was another move on, you know. So you've got now Caleb and Davy Johnson. I mean, that's a ridiculous, because uh, Davy's now an amazing guitarist. He's got two amazing guitarists. Yes. Uh, and, and the best drummer, you know, for me, it was Roger Pope at the time. He's so. a magnificent drummer. I, I, and they, they do sound great, that band. Yeah, and then you've got um, uh, Newton Howard on keyboards. And, uh, yeah, it was, and it Buck was Master, a super... Buckmaster came into that quite late, didn't he, I think? It, he was he was brought in a little bit late into the process to write some arrangements for some of yeah, the Yeah, I can't, can't remember, really. It was all... Uh, I wasn't... Now, when I was at Rocket, I wasn't so involved in... Um, in the productions, mm. although I was booking studios and everything else still. You you spent um, quite a bit of time in Hawaii around this time, didn't you? Well, we only because when we were in the middle of these American tours, we used to stop off in Hawaii for we stopped off there for a break, and then um, 
to play at the uh, at the arena there, but it just made for a, a holiday. So you liked Hawaii? Yeah, that, yeah well, I, yeah. And I don't know whether I well, see at the end of '74 when the band was being dissolved, I just thought this is it. I've had enough. So actually, that's one of my stories. I'd met a woman that lived in an ice cream van in Hawaii, and that's where I was going to go. So um, I thought, I'll retire. You see, I was now 23 and getting on a bit. <laughs> and I thought this was a good time to get out. And um, because Steve wasn't there anymore, I didn't really get on with John particularly well. Um, so I just thought it was all going tits up, I think is the yeah. word. And I think it was. There was a lot of drugs, wasn't there? Yeah, probably. Probably that didn't help. I wasn't doing them. But, um, yeah, it was the time to leave anyway. And I, and I always feel bad because I was going to take Elton out for a meal and explain it to him that um, it was nothing to do with him, you know, because I, I never worked for him. I was always working for Rocket or DJN. Mm. And uh, I suppose if I'd have gone to see him, he might have said, oh, well, you know, I'll pay you or something. I don't know. But I just thought, well, I'm off. So I just, I always feel bad that I didn't go to him and say, you know, it's not personal because I didn't, he might have wondered why I left, you know, he, I didn't yeah. really tell him. But, but, but you uh, did... actually, actually, the main reason is because he was living with John Reed. Yes. So actually, I'd have had to say it's because of that bloke. You had to have gone via John. You really didn't, you didn't, you didn't have a, I, much affection for John then? Not, well, I did on, on and off, but he was, he's not an easy guy. He wasn't an easy guy then no. at all. The right. total opposite. So I couldn't really say to Elton, that's, you've reminded me now, that's why I didn't go and see him because I'd have had to have said, if I was being honest, I've got to leave because John's driving me mad. And Elton would go, well, he's my husband. You know, you can't. Oops. Sorry, so, um, messing anyway. Place up. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I should professionally lock the cat flap door. That would be the professional thing to do, wouldn't it? But then we'd have a sad cat. That's the sound of a phone call ending fairly abruptly as my cat knocked over a bottle of water onto my lovely dining table. Stuart was a fantastic sport. We actually spoke again once I'd contained my cat and we covered the later years. That part of the interview is going to come up in a few weeks. Hopefully I'll get it together in time for the 40th anniversary of a single man, which is getting closer and closer. I'd like to give Stuart my hearty thanks. What a treat it was for me to speak to him. I've got my order in for an audiobook, and I recommend you do too. I'll play out with one of those progressive-sounding demos that Stuart was talking about, recorded with Clive Franks from those exciting days back in the autumn of 1969. 49 years on, here's 60 years on.
Who walked me down to church when I'm 60 years of age When the ragged dog they gave me Has been 10 years in the grave And Senorita plays guitar Plays it just for you My rosary has broken And my beads have all slipped through You hung up your great coat And you've laid down your gun You know the war you fought in wasn't too much fun And the future you're giving me holds nothing for a gun I've no wish to be living in 60 years on your eyes relive again I know my vintage prayers would be very much the same and Magdalena plays the organ plays it just for you your coral lamp that burns so low when you are passing through and the future you're giving me holds nothing for gone I've no wish to be living 